Father, we, we pause to remember again that your word um, is an amazing gift to us. Um, your word is life. Um, your word feeds us and fires us and inspires us and guides our, our way um, and sets us free and gives us joy. Um, Father, help us never to open up your word um, out of just dull routine, but help us to open it with a sense of reverent expectancy that we're in the presence of the living God and that he wants to speak <laughs> words that will uh, do all of these things within us. Father, I want to pray, um, especially as we, we come to think about this theme this morning, I want to pray that your word as we go away this morning would be like a fire burning in our hearts that we would carry into the week ahead. And even though we might forget the detail of everything that we talk about this morning, that still something of your word would, would keep burning in us um, as we go into the week. Um, and we pray in the name of Jesus. Amen. Um, so I guess I wonder, I wonder how you feel even whenever I put the, the title up on the screen or when I said last week that this is what we're going to be thinking about. Um, I wonder what that phrase sets off in you. I wonder, are you excited about thinking about it? I wonder, is there a little bit of uncertainty or trepidation or whatever? I wonder, are you looking at the exit and wondering, is there a way you can still get out of here before we begin uh, this morning? Um, th this is a phrase that's been following me around for a while. I should have said an apology. There were, uh, I gave a version of this talk a few months ago to a group in Balamani, and there were a few of you uh, made the long journey to Balamani uh, to come and hear me that night. So sorry to them, you're getting a, a second go at this. Um, but uh, um, this is a phrase that's kind of been following me around. And I, and I guess to kick off, um, two really simple things that I've been noticing. Um, one is, this is a phrase that occurs in the Bible a lot, like a lot. Um, and sometimes we almost don't even notice it because it's kind of familiar to our ear. Um, maybe one way I could put it is it keeps cropping up in places where I might expect that what it's going to say is trust in the Lord or love for the Lord. It's almost like a standard phrase for believers is people who fear the Lord. Um, and I've I've been starting to notice it recently. Somehow I hadn't noticed it for a long time, but I've been, been starting to notice. Um, but the second thing that I've been noticing, as well as it occurring a lot, is that it tends, often the context in which it appears is actually a context that is really positive and joyful and uplifting. And Dan, Dan already kind of referred to this in terms of delighting in God, that often the fear of the Lord and delight in the Lord go together. And it's maybe not what I was expecting. I might have expected the places where I talk about the fear of the Lord, it would be all about very heavy, kind of serious things. Um, but often I find the context is very joyful. So I want to give you a few examples. Um, you don't need to write all these down. Uh, when I send my Monday email tomorrow, I'll send these out. So if you're, if you're on the list, um, you'll get them. Um, maybe the most famous verse or the most well-known that talks about the fear of the Lord is in Proverbs, and it, it crops up twice in Proverbs, in chapter 1 and chapter 9. Uh, and it says, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. It's kind of like 
The fear of the Lord is like the doorway, the gateway, if you want to access wisdom. Right? So there's, there's one to begin with. Um, often we find the fear of the Lord in a context of praise. So Psalm 112, one of those Psalms that are just bursting with praise. Uh, praise the Lord. Blessed are those who fear the Lord, who find great delight in his commands. So actually, there's a parallel. Those who fear the Lord and those who delight in his commands is the same people. Um, and so again, it's kind of catching my, me by surprise a little bit, uh, the way this is talked about. Uh, maybe a really famous one, uh, Psalm 103. Um, it crops up twice. As high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is God's love for who? For those who fear him. And two verses later, um, as a father has compassion on his children. Is there anything more beautiful than that? As a father has compassion on his children, so the Lord has compassion on those who fear him. Um, maybe you noticed in our Advent series before Christmas, uh, when I was doing possibly my favorite verse in the whole Bible in Malachi 4, um, I didn't talk about this phrase, but it's how it begins. For you who fear my name... The son of righteousness will rise with healing in his wings and you will go out and frolic and skip like calves loosed from the stall. Again, this profoundly joyful verse, but it begins with those who fear the Lord. Um, and in case you're thinking um, it's just an Old Testament thing, uh, when you get to Acts chapter 9, one of those little, just little summary verses about the early church, uh, Acts chapter 9 verse 31 says, then the church throughout Judea, Galilee, and Samaria enjoyed a time of peace and was strengthened. So again, this context of peace and joy, living in the fear of the Lord and encouraged by the Holy Spirit, it increased in numbers. Right? So I wonder, do you agree with me? The context where this phrase keeps popping up, um, just those verses I read with you, the fear of the Lord is connected with wisdom Blessing, praise, delight, God's love, God's compassion, God's healing, God's joy, peace, and encouragement. All those things surround those who fear the Lord. Um, so it's kind of been surprising me and intriguing me and drawing me in and setting me on a little bit of a journey of wondering what this strange little phrase um, is all about. Uh, whatever it's about, I think it's not about what I thought it was about, maybe. Or it's a little different in feel to what I expected. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do my confession here and say everything, um, everything I'm going to say this morning is stolen uh, without shame. Um, I'm going to read you, um, I probably first read this a few years ago from Eugene Peterson, who's one of my kind of heroes in life. Um, and sometimes you just read a paragraph in a book that just, is worth more than a big pile of books that you've read. Uh, and I find myself often reaching for my shelf and rereading just this little bit. And so I'm going to share it with you. And everything, I, everything else I say this morning is kind of a, 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 an extended footnote to this from Eugene. Um, it's from a book called Christ Plays in 10,000 Places. Uh, and he's talking about the fear of the Lord. So um, let, me, uh, let, let me read you a couple of little bits. Um, first bit is... Um, a little bit of grammar. You ready for a little bit of grammar for a, a Sunday morning? 
right? Because this, this is really helpful to me. Um, Peterson says, grammarians help us regain our biblical stride. Uh, they, t- they, they tell us that the fear of the Lord is what they call a bound phrase, right? So stay with me. The four words in English, which are two in Hebrew, are bound together, making a single word. So actually, really, I should write it almost with hyphens in between. It's not the fear of the Lord. It's the fear of the Lord, right? It's one, it's one phrase altogether. Um, its function as a single word can't be understood by taking it apart and then adding up the meaning of the parts. Fear of the Lord is not a combination of fear plus of plus the plus Lord. Fear of the Lord is a word all of its own. If you, do, if you divide it up like that, you kill it, right? It's, it's kind of what Peterson is saying. You don't look up in the dictionary the meaning of the word fear, a feeling of apprehension, plus God, a divine being worthy of worship, and get the meaning of fear of the Lord. Um, pursuing that kind of route gets us way off track. Okay, so that, that helped me as a, as a way of saying that's not the way to go. It's not as simple as saying what we understand as fear and what we understand as God and put them together. So then I was asking, well, Eugene, what, what does it mean? Uh, and this is what he says, and I, I just find this uh, so beautiful. He says, a world has been opened up to us by revelation in which we find ourselves walking on holy ground and living in sacred time. The moment we realize this, we feel kind of shy and cautious. We slow down. We look around. Our ears and our eyes are alert. And this is the bit I really love. He says, like lost children happening on a clearing in the woods and finding elves and fairies singing and dancing in a circle, we stop in awed silence to accommodate this wonderful but unguessed at revelation. That's the kind of thing we're talking about. That kind of wonder and awe of a child stumbling on something magical in the middle of the woods, right? And then a couple of pages later, last bit from Eugene, he says, the fact that the fear of the Lord can't be precisely defined is one of its glories. We're dealing with something that we can't pin down. We inhabit mystery. We can't be cocksure about anything. We cultivate an attentive and reverent expectation before every person, event, rock, and tree, right? Let me read that last phrase again. We cultivate an attentive and reverent expectation before every person, event, rock, and tree. Okay, so everything else I'm going to say is just my little footnote to that, which has kind of been following me around uh, for the last couple of years. Um, So I want to think about, um, I I guess as soon as I read those words from from Peterson, um, and when I see, see these, these verses in the Bible and the context around them, um, I, my heart says I would love to learn the fear of the Lord. Um, I find myself wondering, is this something we've lost a little bit in our generation? Um, I maybe want to think about that a wee bit. Is this something we need to, to recover and learn to cultivate again? Um, and I guess I've been wondering, what does this look like in practice um, how do we actually cultivate the fear of the Lord and pursue it in our lives? Um, and so I want to I just think about that um, for a little bit this morning. And uh, as I've reflected on it, my reflections have gone in kind of three directions. Um, 
And so these are, these are not a definition of the fear of the Lord. I want to remember Peterson's comment that you can't define this precisely. Uh, but this is where my reflections have gone. Um, and hopefully it'll be helpful to you. Um, so first direction is this, as we think about the fear of the Lord. Um, the, the first place in which we need to think about cultivating the fear of the Lord is as we approach God in worship and prayer. Okay, so that's where I want to begin. Uh, Peterson says, that's the main place where we learn to cultivate it, is as we approach God in worship and prayer, both by ourselves sometimes and with others uh, in the community of faith. Um, how should we approach God as we come in, in prayer um, and in worship? Um, let me read you a few words I, I know I've read you before from another writer called Annie Dillard. Um, this always kind of makes me laugh, but also helps me think about this part. Um, Annie Dillard says, does any one of us have the foggiest idea what sort of power we so blithely invoke? She's talking about when we come to church and say the word God. She says, do any of us have the, the foggiest idea what sort of power we so blithely invoke? Or as I suspect, does no one believe a word of it? The churches are children playing on the floor with their chemistry sets, mixing up a batch of TNT to kill a Sunday morning. It is madness to wear ladies' straw hats and velvet hats to church. We should all be wearing crash helmets. Ushers should issue life preservers and signal flares. They should lash us to our pews. For the sleeping God may wake someday and take offence, or the waking God may draw us out to where we can never return. Right? Um, I don't think God is sleeping, but maybe sometimes we are as we come and as we say these words very uh, easily and lightly. What does it mean to approach God um, with a sense of the fear of the Lord? Um, I think it means some of these things. I think it means we approach with a sense of being in the presence of mystery, that there is more here than we can ever imagine or understand, that God is far beyond our best and highest thoughts, <laughs> right? The very best thoughts and ideas and words that we might cobble together to talk about God. He is way beyond. We're, we're in the presence of mystery. Um, I think it also involves a sense of being in the presence of unimaginable power. He is God Almighty, as, as the Old Testament says again and again. He is God of the angel armies. He is the one who spoke galaxies into existence. He's the one who holds the oceans in his hands. He's the maker of the moon as we were reminded in the first half. Um, so as we come into the presence of God, we're in the presence of mystery and we're in the presence of unimaginable power. And also we're in the presence of one who is absolutely holy. He is light. In him there is no darkness at all, no shadow. He lives in unapproachable light. His word says... Um, but maybe, maybe that last phrase, he lives in unapproachable light, um, maybe that um, brings us maybe closer to why we find this a little bit difficult to think about. Because maybe some of us are thinking, surely, John Mark, at the, at, the, at the very heart of the gospel, we believe God in his grace has made himself approachable, right? That Jesus has opened a new and living way into God's presence and all those things about we can approach God boldly with freedom and confidence. How many times in the Bible does it say to us, don't be afraid, 
don't fear, right? And we sang in his presence, all our fears are washed away. And so how do we tally approaching God with the fear of the Lord? And yet we're invited to approach without fear. Um, and I wonder, is there, is there a paradox there for us to go away and wonder about? Um, and maybe not try and tie up too neatly. Um, I wonder, can we find a way to hold those things together? That we are welcome and we are invited to come freely. And he calls us his friends and he calls us his children. And we are to be as at ease in his presence as a little child with a parent they know loves them absolutely and delights in them. Right? And yet the one we come to is God. And we should rightly tremble a little bit. Not with fear that he's going to reject us or destroy us, but with a sense of awe and wonder and a sense of humility at our smallness and his majesty and a sense of amazement that we are invited to come. It should make us tremble, at least sometimes, at least a little. Um, And I do find myself wondering if we have lost this a little. Maybe our generation, we we tend to emphasize always the being at ease in God's presence and we're invited to come and we're we're free to come and and all of that. Um, But maybe have we lost a little bit of that sense of awe and wonder and reverence? Have we made God too small and too tame and too bland? Um, I know I'm I should have warned you at the beginning, this talk is full of quotations left, right and centre. It's just one of, the, one, of those, one of those times when they kept crowding in. Um, Dorothy Sayers says, We have efficiently paired the claws of the Lion of Judah, certified him meek and mild, and recommended him as a fitting household pet for pale curates and pious old ladies. <laughs> right? That's sometimes what we've done to God. We've made him bland. It's not a terrible thing. Um, what does it mean to approach God with the fear of the Lord? Um, I, I find myself wondering, how would that express itself? Um, maybe sometimes we think we need to express the fear of the Lord by being very formal with God. Um, and I don't think that's what, what it's about. I used to sometimes be told you should think about how you would approach the queen and then think about approaching God that way. And it took me a while to go to reject that and go, I don't think that's right at all. Um, I don't think it's about fancy words or fancy clothes or fancy buildings. Um, What would it mean to approach God with the fear of the Lord? A couple of things I think. I I suspect we would be quiet a little bit more. Maybe not quite so quick to fill the air with chatter. Um, Kind of aware of how little we understand. Aware that our best words fall short of the glory. Um, There's a beautiful verse in Ecclesiastes 5 says, do not be quick with your mouth. Do not be hasty in your heart to utter anything before God. God is in heaven and you are on earth. So let your words be few. So maybe if we had a bit more of a sense of the fear of the Lord, we'd be a little quieter sometimes. Um, I suspect we would be more often on our knees, um, more often on our faces before God, maybe less worried about what other people around us might think if we were on our knees before God, um, all the way through scripture. Have you noticed how when people see God's glory, they nearly always end up face planting uh, on the ground? Um, there was a controversy, I'm not going to get political here, but there was a controversy last year when a certain member of parliament who I'll not name got in trouble for being photographed 
um, slouching across some seats uh, in the Houses of Parliament. Um, and it's an image that's kind of stayed with me, and people didn't like it because they felt it showed a lack of respect for what was going on around them. And I found myself thinking, if I approached God with fear of the Lord, I think I would be less often slumped and slouched in my posture, not just physically, but in my heart and my spirit. I think I would more often um, have my hands open, maybe my hands less often in my pockets. Um, I think I would come with a sense of hushed anticipation um, of what might happen when we come into God's presence. Those are some of my wonderings about um, uh, the fear of the Lord as we approach God in worship and prayer. Um, wouldn't you love to come to God that way every time you come? Um, I wonder what it would be like for us as a church to cultivate that together a little bit more, uh, the fear of the Lord. So that's one direction. Um, that one was slightly longer. These two are quicker. Um, second direction uh, that my wanderings have gone, um, as we cultivate the fear of the Lord, um, we start to realize that every moment is holy. In other words, the fear of the Lord is not just for those moments when we are engaging in worship and prayer specifically, but it spills out into every part of our lives and it gives us a sense that every place and every moment is holy. Um, and for me, always the, the, the archetypal story, the classic story here is Jacob sleeping with a rock for a pillow and in his dream, he sees heaven open and angels descending and ascending. And when he wakes, he says, surely God was in this place and I didn't know it. And he calls the place Bethel, which means the house of God. And whenever you and I fear the Lord, we start to realize that that could happen to us anywhere, <laughs> anywhere. Um, you think about all the ordinary places of your life. And we're going to be thinking about this over the next number of weeks. But think about your office or your classroom or your factory or your laundry room or the streets where you walk or the places where you shop and eat. And if God pulled back the veil, you would see angels ascending and descending. And you would say, God is in this place. And I didn't know it. I forgot it. I didn't realize it. This also is the house of God. Um, uh, one of the things I love, I love when... Um, little glimmers of truth appear in unexpected places and maybe especially in, in culture in different ways. Um, I should put in a little um, sidebar here to say those of you who know, have known me for a while know this, but I, I was aware there's a lot of new people, so I should put in a health warning here, which is um, I love movies and music and novels, but I've learned over time that the movies and music and novels that I love, for some strange reason, other people tend to find a little boring or a little depressing or a little weird or all three, okay? So when I mention those things, it's not a recommendation, okay? So I've, I've learned from people coming back to me angry um, uh, with a half-read book in their hands or whatever. So that, that's been said. Um, but I love when you get these little moments, these little glimmers of truth. There's a, there's a movie I love called The Tree of Life, which not many other people I know loved. Um, but Brad Pitt's character in that movie after his marriage has fallen apart, looks back on his family life. And he looks back on the ordinary moments of life with his family. And this is what he says. He says, I was a foolish man. I didn't notice the glory. I didn't notice the glory. Um, and this year, I was listening a lot to a band called The National, 
uh, who sing beautiful, sad, depressing songs that I love. And, uh, and at the very end of the album, there's a beautiful, depressing song. And they're, they're reflecting on, again, on really ordinary moments of life. And he sings, oh, the glory of it all was lost on me. And you think, isn't that the saddest thing in the world? When, when we miss the glory, when the glory is lost on us. Marilyn Robinson, uh, the, the wonderful novelist, says, wherever you turn your eyes, the world can shine like transfiguration, and you don't have to bring a thing to it except a little willingness to see. That's it. Wherever you turn your eyes, the glory is there, the glory of God, because he, he is with us in all those places. Maybe my, my favourite, sorry for all the quotations, but this is maybe my favourite one. Um, George, George Eliot in Middle of March says this, if we had a keen vision and feeling of all ordinary human life, it would be like hearing the grass grow and the squirrel's heartbeat and we would die of that roar which lies on the other side of silence. How about that? In other words, he's saying, if, if, we, if we just for a moment saw the mystery and the miracle of existence and of life and of being in God's presence wherever we are, our heads would explode <laughs> with the wonder of it all, right? Um, and I think this flows from the fear of the Lord. We start to realize that every place we set our foot is holy ground and we better take off our shoes, at least metaphorically, if not literally. Um, we start to realize that every moment is holy. Um, and I find myself wondering, what would it be like to learn to live that way? Uh, to have a little bit of that sense of the holiness of every moment because God is in this place. Okay. So that's two directions. As we approach God in worship and prayer, as we come to every moment, every moment is holy. Um, but thirdly, um, every encounter with another person is holy. It's maybe a subcategory of the second one. Um, the fear of the Lord especially shapes how we relate to other people. Um, whenever, whenever I was uh, studying in Canada, uh, one of the things uh, we were taught by one of our Old Testament lecturers that has always stayed with me um, is he, he talked about how in the ancient world, in the pagan world, uh, there were all these grand temples, and if you went into the temples, at the center of the temple, you would find an idol, an image of the, the god that was being worshipped. But if you went into the temple in Jerusalem, you found that there was no image there. And you would have wondered why. And the answer was partly because of what we were talking about earlier, that God can't be reduced to something we can handle and manage, so we better not try and create an image of God. Um, as it says in the Ten Commandments. But the other reason was this, was that God has placed his image in his world, but he's placed it in his human creatures, this extraordinary truth that every human being is made in the image of God. And what that meant was the pagan could go to the temple and worship their idol and go home and treat their neighbor like rubbish. But for the people of Israel and for us, that's not an option because the image of God is in my neighbor. And so there is an appropriate kind of awe and wonder that needs to be in every interaction with another person, right? Not because they are God, but because they are made in the image of God. Um, and really importantly, not just when we approach important people who are like the movers and shakers, 
but every man and woman and child, and especially the little ones. Jesus says, whatever you do to the least of these, you do to me. Jesus says, when you welcome a little child, you welcome me, right? So do you get that there's a, an awe and a, a trepidation uh, that's appropriate whenever we approach another human being? When we treat people with contempt or when we pass them by like they're invisible, when we don't see them, when we don't notice them, when we write them off as just whatever, we're doing that to God's image. Um, I don't know if you remember in the parable Jesus told about the unjust judge. Uh, do you remember the unjust judge who didn't care about the little annoying widow who kept pestering him, him with her tiny little case? And do you remember what it says about him? It says he neither feared God nor cared about people. And so the two go together. When you don't fear God, you're able to treat people like they're worthless. When you fear God, it's not an option anymore. Um, the two go together. Whenever you and I treat people with respect and dignity and honor, when we treat the lowest person like, like royalty, like they really matter, when we look them in the eye, when we remember their name, when we listen to what they say, when we're present with them, we are honoring the king by doing that in whose image they're made. That's part of the fear of the Lord. You don't just practice the fear of the Lord when you're in your, your worship time with God. You practice it when you're dealing with the smallest, most insignificant person that you encounter. Um, and I wanted to finish with, um, to, to make this really practical, my, my hero in this all my life has been my dad. And I'm sure I've talked about this before, but um, my, my dad is the person of all the people I've known who practiced this. I, I actually don't remember, I was trying to remember earlier, I don't remember my dad ever teaching me this with words um, as a principle, but it's, it's deeply woven into the way he lived before us. Um, that my dad treats everybody the same. And he treats them like it's a privilege for him to meet them, whoever they are. And as he told stories about his life at, in the workplace, it was really obvious that it didn't matter to him if it was the chairman of the company coming from Japan to be shown around. He treated them with honor and respect. If it was the managing director, he treated them that way. If it was the lady serving him coffee in the canteen, he treated them that way. If it was a guy working on the machines on the factory floor, he treated them that way. It didn't matter. Um, uh, my dad in retirement uh, spends every Monday morning, he gets on the train to Belfast and goes and works in the food bank down in, in, this, in Belfast city centre. Um, and I thought uh, Caleb recently got a chance to go and spend a morning with him there and um, just find it really inspiring. But I find myself thinking there's nobody I can think of I'd rather put in a place like that because he will not treat anybody who comes in the door with condescension like I'm doing you a huge favour. He will treat them like it's an honour to meet them, like they're his honoured guest and it's a privilege for him to get to serve them, right? And so that's what my dad has taught me and I would love just a little bit of that in my interaction with the people I meet every day. I hope you have people in your life who have modelled that for you because I think it's an extraordinary thing whenever you see it um, in practice. Um, my dad spent part of the Christmas holidays um, tracking down, finding any, any way he could creatively to find a tumble dryer um, for an Iranian man he'd met. And I found it really moving because Iran's so much in the news at the minute. Um, he was living in a small apartment 
and who didn't have anywhere to dry their clothes and he was worried that the baby was going to get sick. Um, and dad f moved heaven and earth to find a tumble dryer for that family. Um, but I, I, anyway, I'm not going to talk anymore about that. Um, let me finish with this. Um, this is C.S. Lewis uh, summing up, I think, what my dad has shown me in practice. Um, this, is what, this is what Lewis says. The load or weight or burden of my neighbor's glory should be laid daily on my back. It's a load so heavy that only humility can carry it, and the backs of the proud will be broken. It is a serious thing to remember that the dullest and most uninteresting person you can talk to may one day be a creature if you, which, if you saw it now, you would be strongly tempted to worship, or else a horror and a corruption such as you now meet, if at all, only in a nightmare. All day long, where we are in some degree helping each other to one or other of those destinations. It's in the light of these overwhelming possibilities, it is with the awe and circumspection proper to them that we should conduct all of our dealings with one another, all friendships, all loves, all play, all politics. All politics would not be wonderful without awe and circumspection. Um, there are no ordinary people. You have never talked to a mere mortal. Nations and cultures and arts and civilizations are mortal and their life is to ours as the life of a gnat. But it is immortals whom we joke with, work with, marry, snub and exploit. It's immortals. Immortal horrors or everlasting splendors. Right? And so Lewis says... Let's treat people like that was true every day. The fear of the Lord starts in worship and prayer. It spills into every moment and especially into every encounter with people uh, made in the image of God. Um, I hope some of that might stay with you and follow you around as it has me. Um, let me let me ask the band to come. and, um, and uh, If you'd like someone to pray with you uh, before you go, uh, there'll be a couple of people up here who would love to pray with you. Um, and in, in place of a, a closing prayer, uh, I'm going to read a psalm, um, which for me maybe um, expresses the fear of the Lord um, uh, as well as any part of scripture that, I, that I've come across. And I want to pray it on our behalf as an act of worship. And then we're going we're gonna to sing together. So maybe you'd stand uh, while I read this. This is Psalm 29. Ascribe to the Lord, you heavenly beings. Ascribe to the Lord glory and strength. Ascribe to the Lord the glory due his name. Worship the Lord in the splendor of his holiness. The voice of the Lord is over the waters. The God of glory thunders. The Lord thunders over the mighty waters. The voice of the Lord is powerful. The voice of the Lord is majestic. The voice of the Lord breaks the cedars. The Lord breaks in pieces the cedars of Lebanon. He makes Lebanon leap, leap like a calf, Syrian like a young wild ox. The voice of the Lord strikes with flashes of lightning. The voice of the Lord shakes the desert. The Lord shakes the desert of Kadesh. 
The voice of the Lord twists the oaks and strips the forest bare, and in his temple all cry glory. The Lord sits enthroned over the flood. The Lord is enthroned as king forever. The Lord gives strength to his people. The Lord blesses his people with peace. Amen. Um, Let's sing together.